собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. What Russia and China have in common goes deeper than their status as authoritarian post-socialist states or perceived menaces of Western hegemony. Their shared history can only fully be appreciated from an intimately local, borderland perspective. Along remote roads, rivers, and railways, in cosmopolitan cities and indigenous villages of the Northeast Asian frontiers, my guest, Ed Pulford, maps the strikingly similar ways in which these two vast empires have ruled their Eurasian domains before, during, and after socialism. The result is a nuanced picture of the diverse daily interactions between residents of the Russia-China borderlands and their resulting visions of Europe and Asia. What can we take from the centuries of cross-border encounter, mimicry, and conflict that are key to the global place and identity of two leading world powers? Ed Pulford gives us some answers. Ed Pulford is a linguist and anthropologist who has spent several years working, studying, and traveling throughout China, the Russian Far East, the Koreas, and Japan. He currently works as a researcher in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Amsterdam. He is the author of Mirrorlands, Russia, China, and Journeys in Between, published by Hearst. Here's Ed Pulford. Just to start the interview, I'd just like to have you uh, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are uh, and, and what you do. Yeah, so uh, my name's Ed Pulford. Um, I am from the UK, as is probably immediately obvious. Um, I am an anthropologist by training uh, in my postgraduate career, but I started out studying languages, studying foreign languages, and in particular Russian, um, which I'd got into uh, as a result of reading some, uh, you know, some of the books that I guess lots of teenagers read in translation, um, Dostoevsky and, and particularly Lermontov, uh, actually a hero of our time, uh, left quite a deep mark on me as a teenage boy. Um, so I did Russian uh, as an undergrad and then um, kind of got more and more interested in China, though, at, at the same time as this was happening. And so uh, I uh, basically have uh, subsequently tried to combine those two interests. I spent the third year of my undergrad uh, in Vladivostok, which, you know, at the time seemed a pretty insane decision. I think probably still would seem like an insane decision to a lot of people. And I think in a lot of ways, the kind of decade I've had since then has been an effort to make sense of that kind of fit of uh, fit of madness or whatever it was that possessed me. Um, and so subsequently, I spent several years in China before starting postgrad. Uh, and then uh, during uh, postgrad studies, I focused on uh, a border town between China and Russia, 
uh, and since that time have been, uh, since finishing postgrad, have done a couple of years of postdoctoral research based in Japan, in Hokkaido. You know, I'm curious, you know, as an undergrad, what drew you to go to Vladivostok? Because, you know, most undergrads go to, say, Moscow or St. Petersburg, and that's basically it. Yeah, well, I think this was a question that plenty of people had at the time and, and one that, you know, maybe uh, I too have uh, continued to ask myself. Uh, but I think basically I'd uh, got into sort of Chinese-related stuff uh, even before I started as an undergrad. Um, I went backpacking in China as a 19-year-old again, as some people do. And I think, you know, in many ways I've sort of thought about it since then um, and it's occurred to me that really anywhere you go when you're a 19 year old and you're just backpacking, wandering around could probably end up defining your life. You know, had I gone to India or, or South America, I could well be doing quite different things, I think, at this point. But um, having gone to China, even though I'd already elected to study Russian at university, um, I guess that kind of, uh, you know, lit, lit a sort of spark in my in my mind, which I then wanted to continue to pursue. So basically, when it came time to go abroad during the undergrad course, I thought, well, uh, let's go to a bit of Russia that's, uh, you know, got China near it and uh, see what see what's going on over there. So I actually then um, studied Chinese the first year undergrad year of a local Chinese program at what was then Far Eastern National University since uh, upgraded uh, under the you know great leadership of the current Russian president uh, to a federal university in Vladivostok. So so I want yeah so your new book is titled uh, Mirrorlands Russia China and the Journeys in Between and does so do you when you think back about you know where this book comes from does it do you think that it the beginnings of it germinated in this journey from, say, London or, or England to Vladivostok? I think it has its origins there, no question about it. It does feel like something that uh, reflects a lot of, uh, you know, things I uh, experienced and, and enjoyed learning about uh, from well before the kind of um, time doing a PhD, which, you know, as uh, I'm sure uh, those listeners who have engaged in this pursuit uh, as PhD candidates will appreciate is not always a particularly light, airy and fun-filled set of experiences. And so I think, um, yeah, the origins of this book, which I hope is somewhat more accessible and uh, and kind of approachable than a, a book based on a PhD dissertation, for example, uh, the origins of it are in, I guess, yeah, a, a time uh, of uh, my earlier life doing some more, uh, less academically tethered wandering around, but, you know, basically trying to uh, bring things together uh, over several years of experience in both countries and the wider region um, in, a, in a sense that makes it kind of, um, yeah, intelligible to a, to a wider audience. I want to I want to break down the title of the book because I think it's it's it contains in it a lot of the themes um because as reading it you know this is this isn't in the title but it's a very it's a the narrative is 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 based in describing a lot of hybridity of of this region of you know Siberia and the border regions of China and Russia so I want to break down some of the uh, the several themes in the title I mean one of course is the idea of mirrors right this reflection uh, and and how Russia and China reflect one another and then the the journey because it is the narrative is around you as journeying from Moscow to Beijing. And then, of course, in between, which suggests this this kind of space 
between, say, Russia and China that's kind of, it, 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 again, back to this hybrid notion, right? It kind of blends together, but you're, you're also, you're also in, in some of the people that you describe in your journeys, they live kind of in between lives, right? They, 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 they represent this uh, hybridity of China and Russia. So talk about these various ideas and, and how you understand them. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, thanks for the question. It, it, it's a, a title that, um, like a lot of titles, I guess, came about as a sort of process of negotiation with with publishers and people who do actually know what books should be called. Um, but uh, not not that I wanted to call it, you know, I don't know, uh, Goldilocks or something. But um, the uh, mirrors thing, I guess, in some ways is, you know, it's a uh, uh, I guess I should do some obligatory kind of um, humble caveat uh, establishing at this point. But, you know, mirrors are quite useful things because on one hand, they are things that reflect and, and offer inverted visions one to the other, uh, something that is left in a mirror is uh, you're actually your right. But on the other hand, what you see in a mirror is also extremely similar, you know, basically exactly the same, apart from being flipped. So um, somewhat um, uh, conveniently, you can basically use it to mean something that is, you know, absolutely different, but also something that has uh, a huge number of uh, immediate similarities. So there's a degree of cheating about this about this motif. But I think it, it did come about fairly inductively through my experiences moving between the two countries and getting a sense of uh, lots of aspects of each, which on one hand do really differ from one another. I mean, China and Russia, when we're talking about borders, are both places that uh, exert sovereign control and exist right up to their borderlands. There, There is uh, a degree of still feeling like you're in one or the other uh, if you're on either side of the border. And, you know, that uh, can have its effects, make its effects felt in all kinds of different areas, I think, anecdotally you know one thing I've always felt is that going between the two or not always but you know, for as long as I've been moving between the two um, is going between the two involves uh, kind of moving between two places that are quite perfect complements to one another so after a few weeks of eating uh, you know uh, stodgy Russian chebereks and uh, I don't know the pelmieni and, and various other kind of heavy mayonnaise uh, layered salads then the crossing the border into China and having the kind of incredible dazzling array of different colors and flavors and spices and different food products really from across the entire Chinese world you know which are all available in many uh, borderland cities despite you know the fact that uh, their origins are, are very very far away um those that 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 is quite a, a relief in some ways but then after you know a few kind of weeks of that then what you want is you know black bread and napoleon cake and uh, you know kind of things that again come from this other culinary universe which which matches uh, you know the the bits of things that you miss in in china so i think you know that's a it's a facetious uh, perhaps point but the uh, kind of broader picture of of mirrored uh, inversion uh, kind of um is an appealing kind of a theme i think um but yeah more deeply um it was moving between the two that made me understand more uh, for example how important each country has been in defining the other one's vision of europe uh, uh, in the case of how China has come to understand what Europe is through exposure to and experience with Russia and Asia. I mean, China is the kind of, you know, 
in some ways quintessential Asian nation for Russia and and, and has been uh, throughout many centuries. Uh, and so I think some of these identity questions also played into it. Um, the the journeys aspect that you know I guess brought home a lot of this stuff for me. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, the narrative of the book itself is told along a single journey, which I did make. But it's a journey that, unlike I guess some uh, books that or that are based on travel or uh, journeying to new places uh, or new places for the reader, none of these places are particularly kind of new and um, unknown to me. And I think that was a sort of experiment I wanted to do in terms of writing something that was travel, but travel to places that are very familiar. It's not the it's not the shock of the you know kind of to use a, an anthropological term the kind of radical alterity of new places it's it's not going somewhere and uh, sharing your uh, horror at people eating things that you would never dream of putting anywhere near your mouth it's not the kind of um, you know exotic voyeuristic kind of um, travel genre which I think exists I, I, I'm using this sort of journey more as a vehicle for bringing out things that I have observed and that I personally love and think are fascinating about these two places. Um, but also, that you know, it's, it's journeys for a reason as well in, in the plural in that, uh, although my trajectory is the kind of vehicle for or the uh, you know, impetus behind the narrative, the uh, overall uh, narrative also includes uh, references to quite a lot of journeys made by uh, you know, fellow travellers, that's a loaded term, but I mean, uh, people uh, from both countries, uh, not necessarily British interlopers, although there is another one of them as well uh, in the book, but made by these kinds of people in times past. And so it's they are two countries between which many people have, have travelled. And uh, this, I guess, brings us on to the third sort of uh, point you mentioned from the title, this betweenness, it's somewhere where, you know, given this massive land border that the two countries have, there's been constant kind of coming and going um, and lots of the uh, processes of, of mirrored identity of formation and, and sort of developments of worldviews um, have uh, evolved as a result of those the kind of contact that has occurred because especially, say, 100 years ago or so, there were young revolutionaries from the Soviet Union, the kind of just-born Soviet Union, travelling to China to spread revolutionary ideas. Um, and there were young Chinese people, too, kind of uh, in state of uh, great anxiety and depression about the uh, collapsing state of their own country who were travelling to the Soviet Union to look for answers about how you might reconstruct an empire uh, such as China. And, you know, that, in a sense brings back to this sort of non-inverted type mirror because it was via processes occurring at that time that China came to take on an aspect which was as a sort of um, version of, of, of the Soviet structures and, and the Soviet political models and so on um, that has more of that kind of mirror as producing something that's very similar type uh, character about it. My name is Noah, and I listen to SRB because, as a student of Soviet history living in Ukraine, I want to learn more about my surroundings and how history has shaped my new home. There's simply nothing like SRB on the internet, and I'm very thankful to Sean for all the effort that he has put in to make my day better. Dujadyaku. What I found interesting, and also just going back to the narrative, is that though the you know, majority of it takes place in the, the periphery, of Russia into Siberia, but also the border, the borderland regions of of Russia and China, and into the, the kind of periphery of China. Nevertheless, you begin the book in in the centers. 
you begin in Moscow and you end in Beijing. So um, why why do these two you know cosmopolitan metropolises, world cities, act serve as bookends to your to your narrative? Well, yeah, I think uh, this does lead on from the question that we were discussing earlier, really, because the mirrored identity of these two massive cities, as you say, cosmopolitan centers, really imperial seats, you know, in, in, in different ways for many, not even just decades, but many centuries. Um, their kind of status as these sort of mirror capitals whose trajectories through the medieval era, I guess we would call it in, in, in Europe at least and, and Russia, but through, you know, the sort of imperial dynastic period to uh, cities which took on a kind of um, guise of, of modernity in the uh, in the 20th century um, has been very parallel. Um, other things link these cities in very interesting ways, despite the fact that they're thousands of uh, kilometers apart. I mean, f- for example, the contact of both with Mongols and Mongol people moving across this massive space has been absolutely central. So um, as many listeners would doubtless be aware, the kind of uh, development of, of Moscow uh, as a kind of European-ish looking city, you know, with all of its Italianate uh, crenellations and, and uh, lavish coloured churches and things that really kind of started to uh, effloresce, um, uh, you know, centuries ago, this occurred precisely as the Mongol yoke was finally sort of driven back and and that contact with, uh, that kind of overwhelming contact with um, the uh, Golden Horde and, and descendants of of, of Genghis Khan uh, was uh, was 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 removed from from sort of Russian lands. Similarly, uh, Beijing was founded, in fact, in its sort of roughly current uh, locational form, um, and it certainly owes some of its uh, existing street plan up to this day to developments in the 13th century, when uh, after the sort of uh, splitting up of. Uh, the Mongol Empire into uh, the Golden Horde and then the Yuan Dynasty in China. Uh, it was, uh, you know, Genghis, Genghis Khan's son um, Kublai who ruled over the Yuan uh, at the beginning of that dynastic period in China. And so Beijing kind of took shape from that time. So despite the fact that you know, these two places are so far apart and really preside over these vast empires, there are these things that link them uh, even across Eurasia. But I think uh, the journey between the two places was important too because Actually, it's the relationship between the two states that I want to bring out in this as much as I do the relationship between ordinary people who many people may not be aware of, including people who, who live in those two capital cities. Um, I, want to, I want to be able to talk about the relationship between the states and how one can read into the lives of regular people uh, the, the, the pretty uh, interesting shifting ways that the broader political communities and kind of civilizations have, have interacted with each other. And these really are both civilizations in the sense of having not just uh, kind of governed territory and, and ruled over uh, different areas of land, but, you know, in different ways and at different times have really laid claim to people's souls as much as their uh, their political fealty or loyalty. I think, you know, both uh, the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union and similarly China uh, under successive dynasties and and then in the 20th century uh, the PRC I mean we don't need to look any further than the kind of really uh, 
quite horrible things happening on China's peripheries today to realise that uh, just ruling over an area is not is, is not en- has not been enough for people in Beijing for quite a long time, and somehow reshaping their humanity is a, a project that many many uh, in Beijing for a very long time have, have yeah have decided that is necessary in order to uh, secure. They're belonging to the sort of civilizational space. But what's interesting is that, you know, in, you know, to speak about the in-betweens uh, and, and the journey you take from Moscow to, to Beijing is that, you know, both of these capitals radiate out in, in, in the very ways that you're talking about in the sense of not only in terms of the political administrative aspects, but also the identity formation and subject formation ways, right? And, and then, you know, both of these kind of radiate out and meet in uh, some pretty profound ways. And, and specifically, I, I want to speak about, you know, you have these two chapters, one on the Sakha Sach, Republic and then the other on Inner Mongolia. And I was really, again, struck, I think titles say a lot, and that the subtitles of these chapters um, are The East Within and then Russia on Chinese Terms, respectively, for each of these titles. So uh, talk about this, this you know, bricolage to use an anthropology term or an academic term of, of life in these two areas, because one of the things I was struck by, like in, in the in the Sacha tra- chapter, is that you know people understand themselves as this blending and in betweenness between these two civilizations. Yeah, I think uh, the, the two cases they they present quite interesting. Uh, examples of things that have been going on for uh, a long time i mean uh, certainly the idea of an uh, yeah i mean an east within uh, an internal eastern space is one that i think russia uh, has you know wrestled with really for its entire uh, kind of modern uh, history the, the kind of sense that there are places like like china which and 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 like uh, you know more uh, i guess to russian minds in many cases exotic far away places like china or japan uh, which are definitely beyond the the sort of um well <laughs> pale could be used because it's a sort of russian imperial term but i mean the the you know the the, the kind of immediate uh, understanding of people but there's also a sense of course that there is this massive space known as an east and an orient which is somehow within the confines of uh, a russian world and a, and, a, and a russian sort of ruled um uh, space if you like and so i think the Sakha republic is a pretty uh, amazingly interesting place to visit uh, today not just because uh, well in fact probably specifically not because it is the place where the coldest inhabited place in the world is in Oymyakon just outside uh, Yakutsk the main city but also because it's uh, a place where you can go where in Yakutsk you have uh, a population there which uniquely really among major Russian cities is mostly not ethnically Russian so to to, to, to go around that place is immediately to be in a, 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 a situation where you're uh, experiencing a, a version of Russia which is much closer to this uh, idea of Russia as a, as a huge multi-ethnic state, you know, despite the sort of shedding of territory and peoples that occurred at the end of the Soviet Union, Russia still incorporates vast numbers of different, uh, very diverse groups with many uh, yeah, kind of complex histories of re- interrelating with the, the political center in Moscow. And so the Sakhar people um, have been a people who whose relationship over time with uh, the Russian center has been uh, really defined by the efforts of that center to kind of push out. Yakutsk was the kind of staging post 
one of the primary staging posts for the major push that eventually extended Russian territory to the Pacific Ocean or the, the Sea of Ahotsk up in the north and, and ultimately all the way down to the Chinese frontier where it first kind of collided with uh, with, with out, outriders of the Qing Empire back in the, in the 17th century. And so um, Yakutsk has been sort of central to that story of Russia's uh, move through incorporating places into its own uh, kind of world and, and, and having a certain kind of Eastern identity lying at the heart of questions over who the Russians are and you know the, uh, that's that's also part of the story around the Tatar or Mongol influence um, but it's been yeah Yakutsk has been sort of central to that narrative and so today's young kind of uh, I guess mobile and yuppie type Yakut people with whom I spent some time uh, are a group of people who I think are you know very keen to sort of reflect on uh, where that's left them really because especially in an era where you know there's evidence of uh, Russian nationalism at levels of officialdom which are sort of not necessarily those where we saw them before I mean for one thing Putin for many years was very careful about using rasiski right this uh, word denoting belonging to the Russian Federation as as a multi-ethnic state and sort of around the time of Crimea and, and some of these more recent kind of Putin 2.0, or if we're, I don't know, maybe we're in Putin 2.5 now or 2.2, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a, you know, not technically gifted enough to know exactly where we'd put him. But uh, in this period, we're, you know, we're, he, we're hearing occasional injections of Ruski, of, of ethnic Russian into official messaging, which, you know, I kind of... Uh, alarms people in uh, places like Sakhar who are feeling like, well, you know, we are very keen to identify with this massive state as a big, multi-ethnic, uh, interesting kind of, and possibly powerful as well. You know, that thing presses a lot of people's buttons, like the idea of being part of a superpower, understandably. Um, but we're not interested in being sort of subjects of a an ethno-national uh, polity. So lots of those kind of experience come out uh, in the sort of experience uh, in the lives uh, of young Yakut people and their reflections on China as a kind of increasing presence in their lives, just as it's an increasing presence in many people's lives all over the world and has been for decades, um, bring out a lot of the kind of quandaries that I think some of these things throw up because whilst they feel a certain trepidation or, or circumspect uh, attitude towards what is going on, you know, at their own political centre, they certainly feel a lot more distant from a place like China, where although they can go and, you know, kind of ethnically, Saka people are, are Turkic people and, and can uh, live in or can move around in China without being immediately discerned as non-Chinese people, unlike, you know, Slavs or or, or uh, Anglo-Saxons or uh, anyone looking to, you know, kind of European, um, they'd still feel a kind of level of unfamiliarity with it and I guess a kind of concern over its growing influence too. And so uh, this brings out some of uh, kind of harsh reality of their level of familiarity with the Russian centre and with the Russians who, you know, spirit a lot of the, uh, in their eyes, spirit away a lot of the diamond wealth that lies under the Sakhar Republic and so on. But they, they kind of ultimately realise, I think, in many cases that at least they know the Russians, you know, they, they kind of have a have a long, long time familiarity with them that means that they're in a better situation dealing with these people they know than these sort of brand new Aravists on the scene in the form of, of the Chinese, who incidentally have been coming to 
Sakhar Republic or what is now the Sakhar Republic for uh, many decades and, and even centuries, but uh, you know the the, the more recent uh, Soviet and, and Russian experience of Sakhar people is the one that leaves the greatest the greatest mark. And and so what about what about the the these, this idea of the Russians in Inner Mongolia and and this i this concept of Russia on Chinese terms? How does that maybe act as one of those you know inverted reflections? Yeah, so just as you've had Chinese people, I mean, actually, interestingly, uh, historically, it was gold mining or diamond mining or the kind of, um, you know, natural um, resources, I mean, industries that brought Chinese migrants up into Siberia and, and Yakutia uh, for many years. Um, I should say at this point, Yakutia, and I mean, this is probably a late point at which to say it, but Yakutia and Sakha uh, Republic are uh, names for the same thing, um, the same political area of, of Russia. Um, but yeah, it was it was these kinds of uh, prospecting and, and uh, resource-based uh, opportunities that brought Chinese people into into Sakha Republic. And similarly, uh, Russians moving the other way in times past were drawn by a kind of small gold rushes that occurred around the kind of uh, th- what what now is in in an era of you know quite harshly or, or rigidly drawn national borders is the three way border point between Russia China and Mongolia and so these areas which are now part of the uh, kind of contemporary Chinese region of Inner Mongolia um, historically had lots of Russians arriving into them particularly in the late Tsarist period um, and then uh, in the early 20th century as the two empires kind of respectively collapsed and borders started to mean less and less. Um, and so they, uh, yeah, they kind of arrived in this area, which at the time was a very blurred line, uh, sort of region of blurred lines and sort of indistinct belongings. Um, but over time have become incorporated into the Chinese state. So uh, ethnic Russians is one of the 55 official ethnic minority groups of the People's Republic of China. Um, and these communities, which are actually largely descendants of mixed uh, eth- uh, Russian-Chinese marriages and, and relationships, um, are uh, Chinese citizens, but many of them look to uh, many Chinese people entirely uh, foreign or entirely European indeed. Um, and yet what's going on in that region at this point is that this foreign identity and this sort of history of uh, blurred borders that then, you know, gave way to a more uh, recent era of harsher or more rigid border drawing. Uh, this is being marketed as as a big tourist draw for not necessarily tourists coming from far and away, like you know, I guess I did when I was in this area during the journey I described, but for domestic Chinese tourists. And so, actually, visiting a part of their own country. Uh, where there are these people who seem European but who speak perfect Chinese uh, is an increasingly sort of uh, popular exotic pursuit for many people in China and and or at least people who who have ha- happened to have heard about that stuff and lots of the Chinese tourists that I met while there were from a huge distance away you know actually uh, by uh, Chinese standards even pretty far away way down in places like Guangdong province or Guangxi these two these two southern provinces which you know are totally different worlds and the trajectory that you follow if you are a tourist traveling from one of these southern provinces all the way up to the inner mongolian borderlands you know you've crossed dozens of different lines of ethnic and linguistic identification along the way but the very fact that all of that has occurred within china it's a sort of smooth trajectory you know the kind of lack of there's a lack of friction about moving across this massive 
imperial space. Um, uh, and that's a kind of similar process that one has been able to observe in Russia over time. Um, these are two two worlds which internally, uh, although quite keen on regulating their own populations, have been places where people could move around and then but but getting out or crossing over into the other one has been really a jump into a, into a sort of mirror image. Um, but it's these Russians in that area that I think do provide a kind of inverted example of, of the processes underway in the Sakha Republic among Sakha people, uh, because it's it's a group of historically sort of European people dealing with belonging in a uh, an Asian, if you like, state. Now, now, key, key, you know, is in, and it, it comes out in the book, but also as you're you're talking, that movement is is you know a principal historical uh, phenomenon, right? And and one of the the main forms to connect all of these places has been the railways, and and the, these you traveled on these railways railways as well. Talk about the experience, your observations of of traveling on on the railroads, and their their place in the history of the interconnectedness of of these two countries. Mm. Well, I think that it's not a great statement of uh, any great novelty to point out that of course within Russia the Trans-Siberian and some of these long distance rail journeys are a quintessential image of what a lot of people have of the far eastern parts or the Siberian middle parts of the country Um, and it's certainly true today that many of these places are uh, absolute lifelines or many of the railways are absolute lifelines for people living in these more far-flung regions um but um i think what they have a sort of they have a significance beyond this i mean i think the point at which i realized that um albeit you know in a kind of selective reading of history which i'm sure you will uh, pick me up on as a historian but um it, it it seemed interesting to me to note for example that both the russian empire and the soviet union had their sort of death knells sounded by a combination of a sort of disastrous war in Asia and a ludicrous uh, railway building project across Asia. So, you know, if it whether it was the Russo-Japanese War in 1905 coming, you know, at the sort of uh, towards I guess the end of the really ambitious railway laying projects uh, in the form of the Trans-Siberian and the China Eastern Railway which ran across Manchuria uh, or whether it was the uh, war in Afghanistan and the building of the BAM which was really the last Soviet mega project kind of you know chopped across the taiga with uh, by by members of the Komsomol who by all accounts didn't get on very well while they were doing it um and which didn't actually officially get finished until 1999, many years after the Soviet Union that started it was, uh, you know, clearly no more. I think both of these sort of had this sort of emblematic quality to them. Um, but they also have a significance within the two countries, both both Russia and China, as states which have sought to modernise their sort of imperial realms, if I can use that term without over-egging the kind of uh, you know romanticism of empire, but yeah, they've they've sought to modernise these spaces through using uh, or through laying tracks and and having railways stand in as a kind of example of modernity as embodied in material infrastructure. Um, and uh, again, China today and and it's uh, kind of astonishing, breathtaking, headlong drive to lay high-speed railways all across the country including to locations which you know don't really merit it on a on a 
no market basis necessarily, but you know, as a kind of way of knitting the empire together, they have a kind of deeper symbolism, both in in terms of politics and, as I say, yeah, in terms of uh, forging modernity, if you like. And I think thirdly, the the kind of um, interesting point that uh, the railways allowed me to bring out is that this, of course, was the uh, space in which many of these previous uh, travelers, whether from Russia or from China or from the Soviet Union or from some other manifestation of China, uh, have traveled across this uh, this Eurasian region themselves. And so actually it's the travel narratives of uh, people like uh, Chu Chaobai, who was an early Chinese communist uh, activist, um, and uh, other figures such as Sergei Tretyakov or Boris Pilnyak, who are both early sort of uh, leftist, uh, you know, um, I guess, agitators or uh, uh, revolutionaries, if you like, who travelled across uh, to China and to Japan as well. Um, whether it's the, those people, their, their discussions of what goes on on the trains and of their sort of slow transitions, because certainly in the days of revolution, the transitions were incredibly slow. I mean, you know, it, it seems a lot that it takes a week now to get from Moscow to Beijing or Moscow to Vladivostok on the train, but actually, you know, in in, in the era where the infrastructure had been completely ravaged uh, by war and, and including the Russian Civil War, you know, which basically smashed its way across uh, the eastern regions of the empire uh, on the trains and, and sort of all kinds of... Uh, you know, romantic stories around that about big lots of gold the czar's gold being spirited away down the tracks and uh, people spilling over into china on their way running away from the bolsheviks and so on um but you know the railways have played this kind of uh, key role in these processes but yeah were meant that journeys along them were very drawn out and very ponderous in the in the in those days and i think led as a result to some pretty uh, entertaining and uh, incident-filled travel logs which uh, i try to bring out as you know counterpoints to my own travel narrative talk about then it, this you know the the last legs of your journey is really along the boarding going going i think if i remember the map correctly kind of the northern part to the southern part and then kind of back into manchuria um you know as you stated at the beginning um there are hard borders right there are administrative borders um, but, you know, as we know, I mean, just from my own experience living in Southern California and being from Los Angeles, that you may have these administrative borders, but culturally, identity, uh, racial, ethnicity, uh, the, it can seem borderless, right? If you, you removed, if you remove these kind of in, uh, administrative structures, this kind of, it becomes more of a, a, a smooth space between, you say, United States and Mexico. So talk about this at the border region in terms of, you know, Russia and China and, and what, you know, besides the administrative borders, you know, what is your sense of this, of, of the idea of borderlands or the border between these two nations? Hmm. Well, it should be said, I mean, at first that, of course, this is an enormous border uh, of all interstate borders in the world. It's one of the absolute biggest, and, and certainly it's the biggest, I think it's fair to say, between two states which are quite so incredibly different from one another in, in so many ways. I mean, yes, uh, you know, the United States has quite big borders at both ends of it, but these uh, are borders between uh, 
you know different settler colonial societies and um you know i think the the idea that the us canada border represents a sort of civilizational rift well maybe it does these days but uh, you know it, 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 historically it usually hasn't um i think it's you know it, it doesn't quite compare to these two worlds that are represented by russia and china over 4000 kilometers of border and so i think uh, it's also important to realize that you know there's a huge amount of variation all the way along this uh, this length um but that one consistent feature is that the states do make themselves felt you know and, and have done for a very long time i mean it's a particular feature i think uh, that, that that is shared in common uh, both sides of the of this enormous uh, area um but it, it's also the case yes as you say that there is a, a lot of blurring or has been historically um and these kind of groups that uh, exist uh, on both sides of the border um are among the most revelatory in terms of bringing out uh, how the two different states have acted in these kind of uh, mirrored ways if you like and so uh, as well as communities such as the Russians who I mentioned who are the ethnic Russians in China there are groups who don't you know don't belong to either kind of titular majority people of uh, Russia or China these days and so uh, some of the indigenous groups that basically were there before either Russia or China turned up uh, or you know their predecessor states turned up in any significant measure uh, were, were just sort of inhabiting the region do lend a degree of um, continuity to, to life either side of the border and certainly uh, in centuries and decades past and basically up to in many cases the sort of 1920s and 30s sort of around the period that I guess you would expect on the, from the Russian side when you know control over a lot of things really started to clamp down movement across to and fro between uh, you know co co ethnic communities such for example as the Nanai people the Nanaitsi who live in Khabarovsky Krai who I spend quite a lot of time with and, and have done some research on in addition to um, these sort of accounts of them I have in the book on both sides of the border people like them were moving between the two or it didn't really matter to them which which state was uh, you know claiming uh, authority over a particular area at, at a given time that over time in the 20th century uh, decreased in terms of the, the their mobility decreased and so they were then really separated into these two uh, communities the nanai on the, uh, the the people called the nanai on the russian side are known as the herja people on the chinese side despite really you know uh, historically having been part of a single continuous continuous and contiguous um, ethnic group and uh, and and their separation into these two communities either side of the Amur River are is in many ways emblematic I think of the sort of parallel processes that have uh, under have been undergone by communities under both sort of late imperial period in both countries and then subsequently under socialism so I you know as you were talking though I want to you mentioned this briefly and 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 the Harbin makes me think of it as well is that you do, you have these, you have, you know, Russia and China as the two kind of hegemonic, uh, you know, powers uh, and and to some extent, you know, peoples uh, that have influence over the region. But you also have indigenous groups. And then you have people who don't necessarily, you know, fit into those, those binaries. You have Koreans on the one hand. And of course, with, uh, you know, the fabled story of Berbijan, you have Jews. Um, so talk about you know Harbin as this this place of uh, where these other groups that live in between China and Russia, uh, how does that color that city and give it character? 
Yeah, so I think the, the, it is the character of the city in many ways that has been the the bone of contention or the uh, main topic of debate in the uh, really in the decades since it was first founded. You know, in the very uh, last years of the nineteenth and early twentieth century, uh, by Russian uh, Empire, by especially Sergei Vita, right, the, the finance minister at the time, who kind of had his own fiefdom running through the uh, China Eastern Railway, and it kind of was run almost as a separate state with uh, with Harbin as its capital. Um, and actually, the kind of memory of those times in both countries is quite an interesting place to start in this regard because there's definitely a degree of nostalgia on both sides I think you know in very broad brushstroke terms of this multi-ethnic multi-confessional hyper-diverse city and you know what was at the time in an era of in European encroachment into different parts of China was really unique even in on that background you know if compared to other big uh, colonial cities like Shanghai or like uh, Canton Guangzhou it's a, an utterly unique kind of configuration of, of peoples um, but there's also a kind of uh, discrepancy in a lot of the reminiscences I think once you dig a bit deeper definitely from the Russian side there's a, a strong it would seem desire to promote this history as a uh, de- a, a glorious golden era of peaceful coexistence among different people all living fraternally together. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the Chinese side quite sort of understandably recall things in quite different terms that it, this was a uh, an external encroachment. Um, I mean, there, there are debates to be had over the extent to which that was the case. I mean, it's certainly not for me to make kind of grandiose claims about who should be where or anything. That's not my intention. But you know, the idea that this was a realm that was somehow associated with what we might now call China, you know, isn't so clear. Manchuria was a separate kind of space under the Qing dynasty who saw this as their homeland and so on. But anyway, the the kind of contemporary memory uh, kind of industry within China definitely sees this as, uh, despite being a pretty interesting example of Russian and Chinese people and then all these other different people living together, it sees it fundamentally as a an external imposition uh, on on Chinese lives and on Chinese territory. Um, but it, there there were, of course, yes, all of these other different groups of people who were living there, not only uh, Jewish members or Jewish citizens of the Russian Empire who had uh, actual actually many in many cases privileges and rights in Harbin that they didn't enjoy just a few kilometers away back up over the border in the Far East, because um, despite kind of uh, you know Stalin's later great munificence granting Birobijan as this uh, you know mosquito-infested swamp of a homeland for the Soviet Union's Jewish population. The earlier uh, imperial Jewish population were forbidden from settling uh, for a period in uh, the Russian Far East, but they could sort of spill over the border into this kind of in-between land of not quite Russia, not quite China, uh, where they would uh, be able to. Uh, really have a, a great deal more freedom of, of uh, well religion and and be able to be involved in municipal and communal life in Harbin in a way that was not possible yeah, even in you know Khabarovsk or Vladivostok or other cities that were kind of taking shape around the same time not so far away and uh, this they absolutely did I mean that there was a you know really blossoming uh, kind of cultural and, uh, and and spiritual life in the city which was then given a big boost by the uh, 1920s kind of adventures of the of the Bolsheviks across Siberia that ended up inject, uh, ejecting a whole load of uh, former white Russians into Manchuria as a kind of refuge. And again, at that point, Harbin became a great sort of status, uh, a, a symbol of uh, this in-between area which uh, people could live in 
in a version of Russia that actually then for a period after the Russian Revolution preserved a kind of pre-revolutionary life uh, in a kind of uh, bubble outside the now, uh, you know, officially socialist Soviet Union. And so this uh, this kind of, uh, yeah, in-between spaces, I guess, has allowed certain people to lead certain kinds of lives in, in spaces of exception uh, for periods amidst these kind of huge cataclysms which have affected both countries. And it was ultimately a huge cataclysm affecting China that saw the sort of put an end to uh, a lot of this um, uh, kind of uh, what you'd call emigre life, I guess, in Harbin. Um, it was it was the first the Japanese invasion of Manchuria and the occupation that meant that Russians had a diminished status there and a re- always a very difficult relationship with the, the, the Japanese Empire under the Manchu court state. But then after 1945, and especially after 1949, when the Communist Party took charge in Beijing, uh, obviously the game was kind of up for many of the uh, Jewish and other uh, former sort of Russian Empire citizens who'd been forging a life in Harbin because uh, certainly the 1950s being this period of friendship between the Soviet Union and, and China, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese were keen to uh, not be harbouring lots of people who hated uh, the uh, Soviet authorities in their own territory. And so really it was, uh, yeah, these kind of people who've been caught between not just uh, physical territorial space, but also people, you know, stuck between these absolute kind of uh, world, uh, what would you say, like kind of uh, cataclysmic uh, transformations in the political and social order that have basically come to define uh, these two uh, places. And finally, you know, you, you've took this journey uh, from Moscow to Beijing and, and all of your experiences and observations in between, uh, you know, you, you yourself are a key character in this story. Um, so I'm kind of curious, what is, what is your character arc? How did you, how did you, how do you, when you kind of personally reflect on this experience that you have, you've had, um, how have, how has, have you changed if, you know, from, you know, Moscow to Beijing? How do you see in, in your narrative? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. And one that um, I guess brings up something that I struggled with in the, in the writing of the book, in a sense, is just how much of me to inject in this, because really, the thing that was the motive behind wanting to, uh, to write a lot of it, as I mentioned earlier, was a real fascination and a passion for these places and a desire to kind of talk about these lives and these really just fascinating things that I think um, give a deeper sense of humanity, if you like, to to both of these countries that we hear a lot about but aren't necessarily uh, always painted in particularly flattering light. Um, And so I definitely sort of had a intention to keep my presence and my voice uh, relatively minimal, but at that point you lose... I think uh, a certain amount of you know ability to sustain a, a narrative if you if you're just sort of picking up different people in different places. I guess ultimately, however uncomfortable I might be with the kind of solo you know white Western European man traveling to realms unknown. I, you know that's not a it's not an image I'm particularly uh, comfortable with. But I hope that um, I maintain sufficient kind of low profile ness, or at least uh, do not you know impose my own voice over things too much but I guess yeah it's inevitable of course that uh, I mean I've lived um, eight years I suppose roughly eight or nine years in 
Russia, uh, China, and, and more recently, uh, Korea and Japan. And, you know, these places have, have shaped me, not to be too sort of romantic about it, but, you know, I did spend a lot of my 20s in uh, these these countries and, and learned a lot of things about the world in general, you know, not just uh, the specifics of these countries um, in uh, the uh, in 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 while living in uh, whether it was one of the Chinese cities that I've lived in and lived in a few different ones and and same in in Russia um, and I think ultimately you know a kind of measure of some of that um, uh, change in me maybe it's not so much a uh, specific thing that can be traced across a single journey between Moscow and Beijing but sort of more metaphorically speaking realizing what it was that got me interested in Russian uh, language and culture and history and literature from the beginning, which is reading this book, you know, Geroi Nashvavremini, Hero of Our Time, the Mikhail Lermontov book, um, which, you know, as a 17-year-old, I was completely captivated by. I thought the main character in it, Pachorin, was this, you know, incredibly exciting kind of footloose uh, and, you know, romantic figure. The, the, he is this um, embodiment of the, the Lishni Chelavyek, right, the, the superfluous man, this figure in, in, in Russian literature, quite perennial figure. Um, and I think, you know, realizing that it was that that had drawn me into Russian uh, and and studying Russian as an undergrad, and then that that had sort of barreled forward and carried me into uh, all of my sort of subsequent engagements academically or personally with uh, Russia and, and ultimately with China, because it was sort of through Russia that I ended up arriving in China in, in more metaphorical ways than just there in this book. It was realizing that and realizing at the same time that this guy Pachorin is absolutely an awful person, you know, I mean, so far from anything I would ever want to be myself. And I guess appreciating why it would have been that he appealed to me as a sort of 17 year old, um, I think I mentioned this in the book, but sort of, you know, megalomaniacal kind of, um, you know, will to power obsessed, uh, you, you know, teenage white boy youth, um, and kind of arriving at somewhat more nuanced sort of humanistic uh, approach and appreciation of a wide variety of different lives lived and languages spoken and uh, you know places inhabited uh, by virtue of having been in these places that has, has I hope you know made me not again wishing to be too sort of sentimental or, or I don't know um, self uh, self indulgent about it but I hope has has improved me somewhat from the person that thought Pachorin was one of the greatest people he'd ever heard of. That was Ed Polford, a linguist and anthropologist who has spent several years working, studying, and traveling throughout China, the Russian Far East, the Koreas, and Japan. He is currently a researcher in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Amsterdam. He's the author of Mirrorlands, Russia, China, and Journeys in Between, published by Hearst. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org.
Until next time, bye. Oh, uno, dos, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. That black boy over there running scared His old man in a bottle He done quit his nine to five He drank full time and now he's living in a bottle See that black boy over there running scared His old man got a problem And it's a bad one He done pawned off damn near everything His old woman Sister, a show was fine. Oh, she's fine. I think it's fine.